Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I'm talking to a man who has climbed some of the most difficult terrain imaginable. David Roskelly is a Chicago native and he's got the distinction of having climbed the Seven Summits. That's the tallest summit on every continent. Everest, Denali, Aconcagua, and like. That might have been enough. But then he went and climbed this tallest volcano on every continent too. He's actually the first American to do that. I am not a climber. My hands get blistered, my arms get sore. I'm not that big on heights. David Roskelly is a different animal. He'll tell you he's a fan of difficult things. He says it's something that we all should do in some way. Here's his story. 20 years ago, what would you have given greater odds to? That you would climb the volcanic seven summits and be the first American to do so? Or that the Cubs would win a World Series? <laughs> uh, you know, if it was 20 years ago, that's a great question. And definitely nobody has asked me that yet. But And I'm a massive Cubs fan. Uh, so I probably would have bet on the Everest simply because I knew that I wanted to do it from the time I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't mind sharing my age whatsoever. I'm 51. And uh, literally uh, from teenage years and up, which is an odd thing to think about as a Chicagoan, because in Illinois, Illinois, the highest point in, in the state of Illinois was man-made or is man-made. It's mm -hmm. the Sears Tower. Now it's called the Willis Tower. So, you know, there's no mountains around. <laughs> I didn't see, you know, what I would call true mountains uh, until I was about 12 or 13 when I drove out uh, west to the western United States for the first time. And in Wyoming, I saw the Tetons mm -hmm. at a distance on Interstate 80 and thought, oh my goodness, what is that? And it just opened my eyes immediately and thought, wow, I must go there. And so, <laughs> you know, so I had always had a dream of that. Yeah. Uh, was that was that the start of it? Was the Tetons? No, I had I actually have some family that has summited Everest. So I've got a, a kind of an extended uncle uh, named John Ross Kelly, who's quite known in climbing circles. And uh, his son, Jess, uh, may he rest in peace. He passed away last summer climbing up in uh, BC mm. and uh, he and, th and two other climbers were up there and he, he died in an avalanche. But so I had some seeds planted and, uh, uh, you know, I don't, I, I have kind of looked back and, and thought about where the first seed planted and that, you know, reading about his, his pursuits probably was where a little bit of a seed planted, but uh, I also think it's something genetic too that uh, just wants me to go to these high places. And, and it's interesting uh, when I was just I was just in Antarctica finishing up my last volcano in January of this year of 2020, and uh, there were eight total climbers and then two guides, and we had lots of time uh, with weather delays to talk about climbing. And uh, I struck up the conversation, and others did as well several times, what do we all have in common? Why are we all here? Mm. And uh, it was really interesting to, to hear their personality profiles and some of the reasons for climbing. And I, I commented to almost everybody, I said, I, I'm not really good at, at – uh, kind of, you know, speaking to my emotions or kind of sharing my heart, but I'm hearing these guys. Uh, and I, you know, it was exactly the way that I felt about things. So that there's something going on there too, that it, it kind of draws in a lot of people with the same backgrounds. What was the answer to that question? What, what brought you all you know, there? 
Yeah, well, <laughs> that's a good question, too. It's kind of multifaceted, but it wasn't the, the question wasn't what brought us all to Antarctica. It was more, why are we all climbing? Mm. And uh, it, it's been really interesting to, to do the amount of climbing that I've done and connect with people that I know and, and sometimes people that I don't know. Uh, if you're familiar with Meyer, Myers-Briggs, the personality tests. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I'm an INTJ. You'd be surprised, maybe you wouldn't, but uh, I think most listeners might be surprised that climbers in general, like high elevation altitude climbers, uh, alpine climbers, they're very type A. Uh, I've climbed with a ton of doctors, surgeons, uh, you know, super, super accomplished people, CEOs. So this isn't, this isn't kind of the as I call it, the Red Bull or Monster Energy crowd that's, you know, bungee jumping or, uh, uh, you know, skydiving. That's not the group that climbs big mountains like this. It's a totally different group. It, it requires a lot of patience. And and I think that's also something that comes with age and and just with maturity. You're, you, you can sit and be comfortable with yourself and not be impatient. So one thing that I have noticed about myself and my wife has said this as well, uh, I've, I've been climbing at this level for maybe 15, 16, 17 years. Mm-hmm. I've noticed this and my wife has noticed I'm way more patient than I had been originally because there's no room for w- rushing about and much of climbing is out of your control. You can't control the weather. Mm. You, you can, you can scream and shout and holler and everything else, but you can't control it. So I, I remember I, w- I was schooled very quickly the first time I got to Everest Base Camp, as an American, I got there and, you know, I'm very type A. Hey, what time is breakfast? When are we going to be doing this? What time is this, you know, appointment? Because I'm used to being in the working world. And I remember, <laughs> I remember one of the, one of the Sherpas said, whoa, you got you to gotta slow that down, America. You got to slow <laughs> back. This is, you're just way too strung for us here. You got to dial back. So it was, I took it to heart and I said, you're absolutely right. And, and by the time I came back home after almost two months of climbing, uh, definitely a different person, but I had, I had slowed down immensely. In fact, this recent trip to, uh, Antarctica, I was there for three weeks and you're away from your phone and you're away from, uh, just kind of the trappings of modern life. And I absolutely noticed myself, just completely calming down. I'm at peace and I'm addicted to technology like anybody else is. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, you've just got to put it down and get away from it. it. It's so difficult. And when I got back home, I was, I was really calm and I counted the days. It took me about eight or nine days before, you know, with traffic, the phone going off, text messages, emails, all that work stuff. And I was just amped right back up again. Yeah. But I actually counted the days, and <laughs> I would say it was like eight and a half or nine days where I was wound right back up again. Yeah, it's it's sad. You know <laughs> that's coming. You're trying to like hang on to that afterglow, and, and just, and, but <laughs> yes. yeah, it just crashes like, oh, right back. Rats. You know, I was just so relaxed and laid back, and <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was awesome. And that's one of the things <laughs> I love about climbing too. And just in, you don't even have to climb; just being outdoors and just getting away from from electronics and and I'm there's nothing wrong with technology there's nothing wrong with electronics you just have to put it down from time to time mm. so you're a 12 year old Chicago kid and you're seeing the the Tetons uh, but you can't exactly then just go out and you know climb them the same day or, or exactly do that when you yeah. go back to Chicago 
what kind of an athlete were you growing up? Like, what was your uh, way of getting active? Oh, yeah, I grew, you're from Canada, so I played uh, hockey growing up. That's a thing in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I played a lot of soccer. Uh, I wrestled in high school. Uh, I played soccer for four years and lettered. I wasn't particularly good, but I definitely would run and keep super active. I just had, if we had my mom here, she'd be laughing because I had so much energy as a kid. And if my wife was in here, she'd be laughing too, because even at 51, I have just a tremendous amount of energy. <laughs> and I have three boys, and it's all coming back in spades because they're just, you know, full of uh, vim and vigor and all that other good stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully you're able to keep up with them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I am. The, so my boys are 22 uh, 19 and 16 and yeah. I've taken, they've gone, they did Kilimanjaro with me. So mm -hmm. I climbed Kilimanjaro when my oldest boy graduated from high school, I think in Canada, you'd say grade 12. And, uh, we all went to Kilimanjaro together, fathers and sons and my sister and niece went and, uh, and just had a wonderful experience. And then this past summer, I took my youngest boy to Papua New Guinea with me to climb, uh, Mount Gilloway, which mm. is the high volcano down there and had a great experience with him as well. Just so bonding, you know, to spend all that time with your, with the son. Yeah. Yeah. No, no cell phones there either. Or you, you got the phones with uh, you? You know, we did have a sat phone with us and yeah, I had my cell phone with me, but there are places where it doesn't work. And so I have, I usually carry a satellite phone just to not, you know, not to check in all the time, but uh, emergencies mm. and you know, having it's, I've learned some lessons over the years. And so I usually will take a tracker. And uh, what's nice about that is I'll have the tracker going while I'm out climbing. And my wife, bless her heart, she is such a support for me. I, I married well above where I should have. And <laughs> my wife, and my wife supports me in all this nonsense, but it, it's a good peace of mind for her to have the tracker. She can watch on the computer if she wants, she can see where I am mm -hmm. and, uh, and she knows where I am and, uh, it, you know, there's no problems. And especially having my 16 year old Papua New Guinea isn't an especially, it's a wonderful country. We met beautiful people and nice people. But there, there's definitely some unrest there, and uh, you could get into trouble quickly. And so I checked in every night just to let her know everything was okay mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, no no problems. But by and large, you know, I, I think Apple tracks how many times I look at my phone, and, you know, I probably – I don't even know what it is. <laughs> 300 times a day, and when you're there, you know, it's like three. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're growing up playing hockey and soccer and, and wrestling. Who were the ones, like, who were your sporting heroes, the athletes you looked up to? Well, Chicago is Michael Jordan, of course, is mm -hmm. basketball. I'm not particularly good at basketball, but just growing up there, you know, he would be the, he would be the primary star. I, I'm a Chicago Bears fan as well. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Walter Payton was always a huge, uh, and Jim McMahon, you know, I'm an 86 Bears, you know, Super Bowl champ kind of diehard. So yeah. those were all, you know, those were, and then the 84 Cubs uh, did really, really well that year. So Ryan Sandberg and um, uh, Pena, there's Jody Davis, there's a whole bunch of Cubs that were really big that year as well. Mm. So, mm-hmm. When did you go from just being, uh, you know, interested in, in sports of any kind to actually going to summit a mountain or climb a mountain? Like you, you have that spark of inspiration, the, you, you've seen it, you know, in the family, but to then actually go and take it upon yourself to climb somewhere. When did that happen? 
it, when I, I so college as a freshman, uh, I graduated early. I was only 17 when I graduated from high school and I came out to in Utah. I went to Brigham Young University, BYU. Mm-hmm. And uh, right outside of campus, you've got some gorgeous mountains uh, right outside of campus there. And so like almost immediately I was up on the mountains and summiting and climbing around. And and I had been out to Utah and Colorado uh, in, you know, from 13 kind of on, had made several trips. And so I'd been out uh, and seen mountains, been around them, not really been on top of them, but uh, there's a mountain right near where I live called Timpanogos. And uh, that was one of the first mountains that I got up on top of. It's almost 12,000 feet. So, uh, you know, give or take 3,500, 4,000 meters. And, uh, you know, just it was instantly bit. And they've, they've uh, planted uh, kind of those Rocky Mountain goats with the white coats and the oh, horns. Yeah. You know, they're really neat looking. They ha- I think they have them in B.C., and uh, they're just beautiful animals, and here they are up there, and I'm just mesmerized. <laughs> yeah, it's just gorgeous up there, and just ever since then, and just been climbing in North America, and then uh, the first international climb that I ever did was I went to Japan and climbed Mount Fuji, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, had a great experience climbing that volcano, and then just kind of took off from there. What part of that early just initiation in Utah, what attracted you the most to, to being, you know, in the hills and the mountains? Uh, you know, I love the, I, I love actually doing difficult things. That's a big thing of mine. And I, I love being in a position where I have to make all those decisions and you start learning really quickly that, uh, you know, mountains are kind of this metaphor for life and, uh, you, you have to make these decisions up there when to drink water, when to eat, when to go down, you know, if you're not feeling good, uh, uh, you know, when the we- when is the weather getting bad? And I just loved that aspect of it. And uh, I definitely would climb with groups, but I also wanted to kind of challenge myself and see how far I could push myself physically. And so sometimes I'd just go out on my own and solo something and just kind of push myself and see where I where I uh, could go. I, I don't know how or why, but I wasn't born with fear of heights mm. or not very much fear. So I'd kind of push myself. I mean, don't think I'm some nut job hanging off of cliffs <laughs> or something. I don't do that. But, uh, it, you know, I, I, maybe I have more, uh, you know, more adventure than sense sometimes, but, uh, you know, just kind of challenging myself and, and enjoying. And I love, like now I live at the base of Timpanogos. I still live pretty close to it. Mm-hmm. And I trail run up there all the time. So I'm always running. That's how I train for a lot of my climbs. I'll, I'll trail run at eight, nine, ten thousand feet or I'll backcountry ski uh, up there as well. So is that a, an INTJ thing? So fearlessness of heights? I guess. I don't know. No, <laughs> I think it's just something that I that I got. But I do completely. Let me tell you, I absolutely understand irrational fears because I have a tremendous fear of needles. Mm. And if you get one near me. I mean, even like little immunization needles, I just go bonkers. And if I have to give blood, my literally my wife has to like lay down next to me, kind of rub my arm and just, you know, just make me feel comfortable or I will pass out. So I, I don't mind sharing that. Like I, even if I talk about it or it's on, if I see a picture of it on the television or something, I just get 
freaked out. So I understand irrational fears. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, some would say heights are a very rational fear. I mean, if you're up well, on, a, on a mountain, you want to be uh, careful about yourself. Yes, yes, of course. Yes. And I and I do. And I have healthy respect for it. Again, I'm not just, you know, getting right run right on the edge or something. But mm-hmm. um you know, I, I I do understand people having like claustrophobia issues mm-hmm. and all these other things. I get it. You know, I understand. So, yeah. yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a big jump between deciding I'm going to go climb a mountain, you know, outside my back door, and then I'm going to climb the seven tallest mountains on every continent. And then I'm going to go climb, you know, the seven tallest volcanoes on every continent. You know, there's, yeah. a, there's a big, big gap between the two. And I think there's, you know, there's the practicalities to consider. Like, am I going to be able to do this? How quickly did you make that jump in your mind between that first, you know, time in Utah and then all of that since then? I read a book. So the, the first human that climbed the seven summits, which is this, the highest uh, mountain on each of the seven continents. His name was Dick Bass or Richard Bass, and he owned Snowbird Ski Resort. He's passed away, but he was an oil man from Texas, and he lived here in Utah, so he owned a ski resort here in Utah. And uh, he wrote a book about it. And I read that, and I said, I always knew I wanted to climb Everest, and I said, well, I know you can't just go climb that, so uh, I'm going to start climbing all these other mountains to prep for you know, getting up the big one. Uh, you can't just go there and climb it. You literally would die. And mm-hmm. that happens, right? So uh, to, I, I always knew that I could. So I've always had that in the back of my mind. And uh, I generally, you know, will kind of put my mind to something and I'll do whatever it is to accomplish it, uh, w- you know, within reason. Uh, thankfully, every one of the mountains that I climbed, I was able to get on the first time. The only one I didn't was Denali which was extremely frustrating for me because I am generally pretty successful with things. And so to not get that, I was a bear to live with for a year, but I went back the following <laughs> year and climbed it and got it. But uh, it, it is a jump. And the reason I didn't do it sooner is uh, I usually mention this when I talk about climbing. Uh, the, the, the alpine climbers, you know, it's expensive and it takes time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you've got to have those resources and be fit so that it's – to get that kind of trifecta, there's not a lot of people in that position. And it wasn't until kind of early mid thirties that I started being in a financial position to do it. But you also have to be in the position where you can have some freedom and flexibility with your, with your profession or your business, whatever you have. And so those kind of gelled and came together kind of early thirties. I'd started a business at uh, 29 Mm-hmm. And have had wonderful success. I say it with all humility. I've been really, really fortunate that way. So I've always had good folks that I've worked with and they've covered for me and have great business partners. So that I think that was really kind of the turning point was where I was able to get to that point. And, you know, most of this has got to be disposable income. And so it, it's just it's not going to factor into feeding kids and paying tuitions and all that other kind of expenses of life. Right. You know, it's, it's just extra on the side, right? And again, let me just say, I'm saying yeah. it with all humility. I, I've been very fortunate. What are your friends and family saying? You, 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 the first people oh, yeah. you're telling that I'm going to go and, and <laughs> climb Everest and I'm going to climb all these other mountains too. Oh, very supportive. You know, they, they've always been supportive. My, my wife, when she married me, she knew I climbed a lot. And so she's always been very, very supportive uh, of me doing this. And my parents are very supportive. Uh, before I left for Everest, because i you know, obviously this is a pretty good chance you might get injured or perish. And mm-hmm. so I sat down with 
my boys, I sat down with my wife and I just said, look guys, this is just, this is very selfish. This is just something I want to do. This has nothing to do with my income or providing for you guys. This is just all about me, 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 me. I said, if you don't want me to go, I will not. And uh, all of them said, no, dad, we want you to go. We love it. Go, go, go. So, and my wife was on board. You know, if, if any of them had reservations, I'm not going. It's not worth it to me it whatsoever. And uh, they've just always supported me in doing this. And I support, I'm very supportive of my wife as well. So. Hmm. Is that like a mountain by mountain thing that you're checking in with them saying, hey, okay, we, we were on board uh, last time. Are we still on board again? <laughs> uh, generally, yes. But Everest, uh, you know, Everest, Denali, kind of the bigger ones because yeah. there's higher likelihood of having a bad day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've been really, really fortunate on, on every one of my climbs. I haven't really had any anything significant to write home about. And again, I say that with all humility, you know, and a knock on wood, all that other kind of stuff. I've been, I've had some really good success. Mm. Uh, I'm happy for you, but also a little bit, you know, as someone who's hoping for these fantastic stories of things going terribly, (laughs) you're telling me bad news right now. (laughs) I I have definitely climbed, you know, been around some people that have had issues. And, And when I was up on Everest and Denali, actually quite a few mountains, uh, you know, you, you, as you might be aware, you see bodies, you see, mm. you know, you're not going to do this, uh, for very long and not be around, uh, people perishing and having friends pass away. I, I had, a, a, a an acquaintance friend of mine, uh, from here in Utah, he died last year on Everest. So mm-hmm. it, it is kind of one of those issues. You just kind of have to wrap your mind around when you get into this sport is you're going to lose friends and, uh, it, it's just going to be around you and you just have to kind of figure out how to make that work. But I will I will tell you one story. This is interesting. So we had summited Everest. We'd come back down. We were at base camp. We'd been gone quite a bit. And so I climbed with a good friend of mine. His name's Steve Pearson. And I said, Steve, I'm I'm are, are you ready to go home? I know I am. And there's helicopters back and forth to base camp all the time. So I said, let me just let, let's get helicopter. We'll take us down and we'll get out of here really quick, you know, save us four or five days, which it did. Mm-hmm. And so I called, got a helicopter. We, you just go stand on like a stone pad and the guy, you know, you talk to a guy with a headset and a little cell phone. He's like, okay, just stand here. You know, you'll be like the third or fourth helicopter. And so we're waiting there for a half an hour, 45 minutes and lands, picks up people, keeps going. So he says, here, this helicopter's coming up the valley. This is yours. And so it comes up the valley, and it makes a sharp turn and goes up the Kumbu Icefall. We said, wait, we thought that was ours. He said, oh, hold on a minute. So it goes up the valley, or the icefall, and about 10 minutes later, it comes back down, and it's got a rope, a static line to the bottom of it with a, with a uh, body wrapped in a sleeping bag. And it just hovers right over us, drops this uh, sleeping bag with the body wrapped in climbing rope. You know, they unhook it, move it aside, take the rope up and land. And, you know, I'm kind of looking at everybody like, should we get a rabbi to bless this thing or what? You know, just jump in and go, you know, it's just, they, they just kind of moved him aside like he was luggage. And I don't, I don't say that in in any disrespectful manner as well. It's just so commonplace up there. That's just how it's, how it, how it's treated. So Uh, uh, So, I don't know if you want to hear that story, but you got it. (laughs) So, Let's talk about the beginnings of the big climbs, if you will, the seven summits. So 2007 is your first of both. This is this is sort of a double dipping, right? Because it's both a volcano and it's also one of the seven tallest being Mount Elbrus. Am I correct in that? 
That that is correct. Yeah. So Elbrus in Russia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What went into starting there, and and how did that go for you? Yeah, you know, if I were is so if somebody was listening and wanted to get into this and do this, I would actually tell them to do the seven volcanic summits first. And and the reason for that is they are easier and it's more achievable. Cut your teeth on that and then go to the seven summits after you finish that. But there there wasn't any particular reason in doing Elbrus first. Um, we had talked to some other folks who who had climbed Elbrus and um, I, I climbed with my brother-in-law and he was kind of, both of us were kind of interested in going to see Moscow. Neither of us had been before and, and it proved very fascinating. You know, it was a great, interesting place to go. And, and that's one of the kind of the pieces that's lost on all this climbing is you get to visit these really fascinating places in the world mm-hmm. and just meet fascinating people. So that's this like side piece that I would have never thought about going into this. I've been to places and countries that you wouldn't necessarily just like pack up and go hiking in Papua New Guinea or just go there to visit unless right, you're going right. to, for me, unless I was going to go and climb. So. Right, right. Papua New mm-hmm. Guinea, Iran, uh, yeah, Antarctica. Oh, yeah, I certainly <laughs> as an American, I'm not going to Iran unless, yeah. you know, I had to go there for a uh, climb. You're absolutely right. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. How do you psych yourself up for the grunt of this kind of work? I mean, you talked about patience earlier, but I mean, the summit part, if, if, if that's what we talk about, ultimately, when we think about people going and climbing mountains, we think about, you know, being at the top. But that's only like the smallest part of that whole adventure. Oh, I love it. Everything about it. In fact, you know, getting to the top for me, it, it's wonderful, of course, but I enjoy just getting there and the exercise of it and just getting out and grinding. I absolutely love that. And I'm one of those weird people that I I, I have to be careful how I say this. I, I'm, I'm just going to say it uh, and then I'll explain myself a little bit. I, I like suffering. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to purposely like break my arm and suffer. That isn't it. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, the hard work of you, you've put in all the time you've spent a year training and you just kind of know what's coming and you just kind of push through it. I, I love it. And I think people that people that have done this or other difficult things, uh, they're going to appreciate what I, what I'm saying when I, when I say that it's just, uh, I like it, you know? enjoy the grind you know i just i just really i think uh, i've heard some navy seals say this embrace the suck have you ever heard that before yes yes i have yeah yeah, i just that's the way you would describe it it just it sucks but you have to do that to get through it if you want to accomplish something really really great Hmm. just is what it is it's not going to be a gimme so you know, uh, you just kind of psych up and you know, I'm going to be eating weird stuff and I'm going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to be cold. I'm going to be hot. And it just is what it is. What's the weirdest uh, food you've got to eat <laughs> while uh, while climbing? Uh, you know, yak is, is really good, but okay. it's not something that most people would eat, right? <laughs> so <laughs> they, they, you've seen a yak. It's just like basically a kind of a big hairy cow and, mm-hmm. uh, the, up at base camp, when we were up there, they had a, just like you would quarter an elk or a deer, something like that, if you were hunting, uh, they just quartered an elk and some, one of the Sherpas carried it up to base camp. And the, for the better part of a month, they just kept carving meat off of the, off the rump of this thing. And we ate that, I would say almost every day, either a dinner or lunch, we'd have some yak. Mm. So it was good. I just got used to it. You must be, you must have to have a lot of calories to fuel yourself. Oh, Gosh, yes. Uh, so it, this is an interesting uh, tidbit. So above about, well, in the death zone, so above, above about 25 or 26,000 feet, 
uh, you the the idea is you burn about thirty or thirty five thousand calories in a twenty four hour period, so you can't possibly put that much food in your body. So you end up losing a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. So I lost probably about eighteen or nineteen pounds, which is close to about ten percent of my body weight. So I came home really really skinny. Uh, but it, it, your body just starts eating itself and it eats muscle. So I think it took about a pound from each side of my chest and mm-hmm. about a pound and a half from my derriere. So when I got <laughs> home, you know, my wife, I got in the shower, we have a glass shower door. My wife said, <laughs> she looked at back, my backside, she said, your butt's gone. You know? <laughs> and it, it had, it, 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 it's interesting because I used to have uh, more muscle kind of higher up on my, uh, my cheeks and my pants now kind of have a little bit of a fold or a void where that used to be. And I actually lost enough muscle that it for a while it impacted my gait because wow. I was used to getting more push out of my run. And I could feel that it impacted my gait from losing that much muscle. Wow. So not something you'd normally think about, but it definitely happens. Yeah. yeah. And all of that within how long of a span? Like how many days did it take to lose that kind of weight? It was definitely happening while I was, you know, overall while I was gone, but I would easily say kind of the 36 to 48 hours I was in the death zone. Yeah. I would guess probably 60% of that was it just in that very short period of time. And it doesn't go for fat. It just goes for muscle. Your body is doing its survival mode. And mm. so it's just doing everything it can to, to survive. So really uh, when you're, when you're up at that elevation, you don't need your arms. You don't need your leg. I mean, you do, but your body to survive doesn't need arms, legs. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it just needs basically your torso and your brain. It doesn't even need, you know, it certainly doesn't need reproduction and it doesn't even need digestion because nothing comes out of you. Your body's using everything you put in it. Huh. So as weird as that sounds, not, <laughs> not stuff you normally think about, right? <laughs> Not at all. So I, I want to talk about Denali then. You know, you've talked mm-hmm. about uh, embracing the sack and, and, of, um, and if, if so, so often things go right, I mean, how do you handle disappointment, right, when things do go yeah. wrong? Because ultimately you do, it is out of your control. You might, you might be able to be in the best condition of your life, but the weather conditions change and you just can't make that push for the summit or, or things happen, right? How do, you, how do you deal with that on a climb? Well, yes, and you just have to be patient about it. So on Denali, I climbed the first time I went. Uh, I climbed with some some very nice guys. The the one guy I was with, he one climber, he developed pneumonia, and uh, we were up on the head wall, so probably fifteen thousand feet or something like that. And he was just getting worse and worse and coughing horribly, and uh, it got really really weak. And uh, we we got him back to the fourteen thousand foot camp. And he said, hey, guys, you know, if you want, just just leave me in my tent. You can go up and climb and come back and get me. And, you know, my buddy and I are looking at each other. We can't <laughs> leave him in the tent to die. So, you know, <laughs> it was nice of him. We said, you know, we, this is reality. We, we just have to go down. We have mm-hmm. to descend. So we, we took him down. And, it, you know, it was, a, it was very disappointing because I'd trained and worked and time off and money and, you know, all of that balance. It is frustrating. And that's why I was kind of a bear for a year. But, uh, you know, you get through it. And uh, I, I met some different uh, different climbing group of guys and ultimately summited Denali with my friend Steve. His name's Steve Pearson. And then we struck up a really, really good friendship and uh, climbed Everest together. So kind of that silver lining out of the 
out of the dark cloud. But I'm always a really optimistic person. I, I definitely don't. If you're kind of that pessimistic person, you're not going to do very well in in the climbing world it's just not going to be really good for you you just have to kind of roll with it and just that's another thing i've noticed with a lot of the climbers is they're pretty dang easy going you know they mm -hmm. kind of just roll with whatever comes along and you know that's kind of that metaphor for life stuff and i've just kind of rolled with things and try not to you know always kind of remain cool i can certainly get a little agitated from time to time if you ask my wife, she would be laughing, shaking her head, but I generally try to stay pretty calm and cool about things. Thinking of climbing partners, if you're thinking of the people who like to do this kind of thing, who like to do difficult things and climb mountains and, you know, weather very unfavorable conditions, whether that's wind, terrible wind or cold or just discomfort. I mean, it's a bit of a strange bunch <laughs> that, that you've yeah, got to surround yeah. yourself with at times. Yep, Who, who's yep. been the most memorable of your climbing partners, the people you've crossed paths with? Oh, most memorable. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, I have climbed with uh, with a large group of, of, you know, different folks over the over the years. And I, I've probably had the most fun just climbing with my sons and mm -hmm. just the bonding with with my boys. So my oldest and my youngest, they they were going kind of speedy with the rest of the group on Kilimanjaro and my middle son, his name's Porter. He really just, I don't know if he had about a dysentery, something got him. And so he was just moving really slow. And we even had one of his friends from here in our hometown go with us his, his dad didn't, wasn't able to join us, but we took him with us. And so they all were just moving, you know, pushing right ahead, doing really, really well. And here I am with my middle son going, oh, we have to get this. And so just had this wonderful bonding experience with him. You know, we were about an hour behind him, but he did summit. And I just kept encouraging him, pushing him on. Uh, you know, that has just been so memorable uh, to me, spending that time with him. And, and I'm so glad that I did because if he hadn't summited, uh, it, you know, it just wouldn't have been good. In fact, that I always take a U.S. flag on every climbing trip and I have the team sign it. Mm -hmm. And so our whole team signed it, including some of our, our climbing porters and things and framed it. And it's in my kitchen. Oh, and that's so nice. now when we're doing, you know, when the boys are doing homework or something difficult, you know, frequently I'll say, Hey guys, look right up there. Look what you did difficult. This isn't that tough. You did something really, really difficult there. So, you know, be, be, you know, be mindful of that. Right guys. So they, 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 uh, they kind of get sick of me pointing to the flag on occasion, but <laughs> It, it's it's a good it's a good reminder. What uh, if you're thinking of the the volcanic summits, the seven volcanic summits? What is the the most challenging one to climb? Yep, uh, I would say challenging from just a red tape and paperwork is Iran. Mm. You know, as an American trying to get into Iran is just about impossible. And uh, I was fortunate enough. I had I had nothing to do with it because I'm not connected. But I had some friends that had some connections with the State Department and visas and all that other fun stuff, and so they were able to get us in, uh, and go. So that was the most challenging I think of any of the climbs, the paperwork to get us into Iran. Uh, you know, as far as the most difficult, I think it probably would be Ojos del Salado, which is also the highest volcano in the world. So. It's almost 23,000 feet, which is whatever the meters are on that, like 6,500 or 6,600 meters, whatever the math is, mm -hmm. so maybe 7,000 meters or something. But uh, that's the most difficult. It's just because of the elevation. It's so difficult 
as humans, we were not engineered to function at high elevation like that. And so you have to acclimatize and just get used to it. Uh, but you slow down immensely and you just have to be very, very careful uh, climbing at elevation. So I think that of the volcanoes, that one's the most uh, difficult just because of the elevation. How have you been with altitude sickness on all of these climbs? Been super fortunate. I've, I think uh, a key for me is keeping super fit and also hydration. So as long as I've got both of those and uh, and not, you know, just being really careful. I've always been really careful with with eating and, you know, sanitation and all that kind of good stuff. And I've just been really fortunate. There is kind of a skill set in people that travel internationally a lot. I'm sure they'll know what I mean when you're just careful about washing your hands, careful where you use the restroom, careful where you eat, uh, you know, all of those kinds of things help keep you healthy. Mm-hmm. And I usually take a probiotic, you know, there's some things that I do to keep myself uh, healthy, but even just one bout of dysentery in Kathmandu has sidelined a ton of people from climbing. Uh-huh. Uh, in fact, there's a whole laundry list of people that have been hit by like mopeds or tuk-tuks in Kathmandu and their whole trip's over before uh-huh. they even get up on the mountain. So all that kind of stuff you have to be really careful of. What uh, about the most difficult journey just to get to the base of a mountain? You know, because sometimes it's not like you're you you're know. flying into a country and, you, and you're right at the foot of the mountain right away. Sometimes oh. it takes train rides or it takes these uh, backpacking expeditions just to get there. Yeah, by by and large, Everest is probably the longest approach of any mountain. I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head. Because you fly into Kathmandu, and then from there, you can either take a helicopter or fixed wing up to Lukla, which is the world's most dangerous airport, uh, by the way. And then from there, it's easily seven, eight, nine days just to get to base camp, just so you can start climbing. Hmm. And uh, it, it's it's a long way, but what's it's just... I, you know, I'll use words uh, like magical. I mean, they're just, it's just such a fabulous place to go. If anybody, if you really honestly want to change your outlook on life, and I promise if you went there and trekked, you don't have to go to base camp, but if you just trek in the Kumbu Valley, even if you go to Gorakshep, which is just right below the Everest base camp, just that experience of spending a couple weeks there, you will come back a different person and you'll be better most likely. It is just amazing. I sound like the Nepal Travel Council when I start talking about it. It's just such a wonderful place. And, you know, there's, there's, uh, it's changed even from when I was there. The first time I went was in 11, I believe. And then I summited in 13. Uh, even now it's, it's changed quite a bit, but there's no internal combustion. So there's no cars, you know, people are on foot or on like a mule or donkey or yak. That's Mm. how you get around up there. And monks everywhere and uh, monasteries and people are just beyond friendly and they smile and, you know, they have very, very little compared to what we would have in North America. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the per capita income, I think, in Nepal is like 900 or or $1,000 a year. Yeah. So, you know, you probably – I'm talking on a computer – that it obviously costs more than that. And you, most people have a cell phone now that costs more, you know, yeah. than somebody makes for food, medicine, uh, you know, transportation, and they're perfectly happy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's pretty humbling. So, you know, that's the kind of good stuff that you don't see as, as a, uh, a Westerner. Um, you know, you don't, you don't get to see that where we live here and the privilege that we have is tremendous mm. how fortunate we are to live where we, 
where we do. And, and even just the fact that we speak English is huge, and we all take it for granted. Uh, I try not to, but the, you know, these folks, just to make a living, they realize that if they can speak English, then they can speak to people that actually have money. So right. they all try to learn English so they can communicate with people that have resources, right? And we just take it for granted. Yeah. 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 That's the, that's the, the beauty of travel in, in some senses is, I mean, uh, going to any one of these summits is going to involve going to another country and, and talking to people from another part of the world and, and hopefully learning something different. Oh, it is. It's such, it's so wonderful. Yeah, it, it is. It is. Yeah. And I, that's why I encourage anybody that is listening. Uh, you know, Americans by and large do not leave the country. A lot of, if you look at the stats, most Americans don't even have passports and right. I think they're missing huge opportunities. I don't know if it's the same stats in Canada. You probably are more prone to have a passport in Canada, but, um, I definitely think the most Americans don't have passports. So they're missing big opportunity to not be able to see other areas of the world. Hmm. So you started this, I mean, 2007 was the first of these major summits, if we want to call them major summits, uh, that, mm -hmm. that you went out and did. When did you realize that becoming the first American to do these seven volcanic summits, that that was in play, that you could become the first? Yeah, that is a good, good question. And, uh, I don't know if there was a single point, but what happened is I finished the seven summits and I started thinking, okay, what's going to be next? What do I want to do next? And so I started looking around at things and I have a friend, Martin here in Utah. He, he did the seven summits and then he sailed the seven seas. So he's the first person to do that mm -hmm. and, uh, got in the Guinness book of world's records. And I started looking around. I thought, I don't think anybody's climbed the seven volcanic summits. So at first there's not a lot of record keeping. There isn't, you know, like, a, uh, you know, the professional hockey league, the NHL, that's keeping stats on things, you know, like a <laughs> hall of fame. That's so many goals, this guy, you know, yeah. whatever, there isn't a group like that. Right. And it turns out there is one guy in, um, uh, the UK and he does keep track of the seven summiters. And so, uh, you know, I found his website and reached out to him and it's a very small group. It's getting bigger. But, uh, when I, when I really kind of start the idea peaked just from reading an article or something like that. And I started looking it up and there were only like 11 humans who had done it. The first guy to do the seven volcanics was an Italian. And <clears throat> then I started looking, there was a guy from the UK and, uh, an Australian, an Indian climber, a handful of Russians, but there's no American on the list. And I thought, ooh, this is interesting. So I started researching it more, and it turns out that there wasn't an American. And I, th I personally think the reason why is because it's so hard for Americans to get to Iran. Mm -hmm. and, and then when my buddy popped up with a trip to Damavand, to the volcano in Iran, I said, ooh, all right, I, I, I think this is meant to be. So I jumped on that and then I had to kind of keep the idea to myself because I didn't want anybody else to get the idea, you know, no <laughs> other Americans. And there is a Canadian that, that has done it as well. I think his name's Ted Fairhurst. But um, the so I, I kind of quietly started working with Antarctic Logistics, who is the group that takes you to Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And they have a record of everybody who's done Mount Sidley. We were only the 50th through the – there were 10 of us that climbed. So we were 50 through 59 uh, people, humans who had ever been to the top of Sidley and they know exactly who's been there. Uh, so that I kind of backtracked into that and looked at other stats and realized I was the, the only, would be the only American. So what was the moment like to, uh, to do it in Antarctica and, and, uh, put a bow on that? 
Oh, awesome. It is just spectacular. I, I just wonderful. And, you know, it's exciting to, of course, be at the top of the mountain, but you realize you got to get back home and you know how far you've come. So mm. I'm all the way down at the bottom of the planet and uh, there's still a long way to travel. So I never put any of these in the books until uh, I'm home. And that's when I celebrate, you know, I'm home with my family and I'm safe. And right. The flags back on the so, back in the kitchen again. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Driving in traffic, you know, all that other fun stuff and winding up as an as an American again. But it's really weird. I, I was down there for I don't remember. It was like I was actually in Antarctica, I think, for like 14 days. But I, I was down in Patagonia for a week before that with my son fishing. So I was gone for three and a half weeks and really didn't see the sunset for that time because that time of the year is their summer solstice and the sun never sets. So uh, when I came back home and saw the sunset, it it really messed up my circadian rhythms. I didn't think it would, but it really kind of started messing my sleep cycle up because it's, especially down there at Sidley, it just spins in a tight circle around your head. It's very weird. Uh-huh. <laughs> You've never seen that before. You know, you just look up and there's the sun, you know, like noonday, wherever you look. Yeah. So, it's, but it was, it's, I would encourage anybody to go to Antarctica. It's such a fabulous place to visit. Hmm. I've heard of the phenomenon in Antarctica where, depending on where you are, maybe the time of day, you can even see multiple suns. It's, it's sort of like you will see like f- four. It's sort of a, a trick of the eyes. Or I have heard some of that. I have not personally seen that. I definitely saw some sun dogs and some yeah. other weird tricks of light. Yeah. I have heard that and I have, I did not see that. Mm-hmm. No. Um, you got to find another group of seven of some sort now. Is that is that uh, what's next? Or no, 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 no. <laughs> the next thing I want to do is go to the high point of the moon. So uh, the high point was only identified less than ten years ago. It's called the Selenium Summit, mm-hmm. and uh, the what I'd love to do is ha- go there with SpaceX. So I'm I'm I actually wrote about two weeks ago. I wrote a letter to Elon Musk. And uh, like a handwritten letter, mm-hmm. addressed it to him. I got his address, sent it to him and said, hey, you need to, I want to go. I realize it's going to be with SpaceX if you're going to go. And I want to drive a Tesla to the to the high point of the moon mm-hmm. and come and go with me. And uh, if you remember back to the Apollo missions, so the U.S. Apollo missions, there was Apollo 15, 16, and 17. And they had lunar rovers on the surface of the moon. And they were electric. And they're still up there, by the way. They left three of them up there. But they, they drove, I believe, Apollo 17, they drove up to like 25 or 30 miles on the on the moon, uh, which is rather fascinating to think about, you know, electric vehicles being up on the on the uh, on the moon like that. But mm-hmm. they're, they're still up there. So why not take a Tesla, you know, up there and drive some kind of Tesla to the moon? Why not? Or, I mean, to the high point of the moon, excuse me. Yeah. Sure. So I think it's closer than people think. Uh uh, I know that the current U.S. presidency has said if if and this is not a political statement at all, but they've said if they if President Trump's reelected, he wants to go back to the moon by put a uh, American on the moon by 2024. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what current conditions are going to do to impact that. I'm sure that's the last thing on anybody's mind at the moment. <laughs> but he has said that that is something he wants to do. So I- unless, you know, we have huge, huge setbacks with coronavirus, who knows what to expect. But I think in the next five or 10 years, we're going to see an explosion of travel to the moon, colonization. Uh, y- you know, I think you're going to see a lot of a lot of things happening uh, on the lunar surface. Mm. Yeah. 
could be a good way of getting away from the coronavirus right now to could be the space shuttle. From the moon. So I know I know in Antarctica they have done studies on uh, E. coli and other bacteria that uh, you know if you're down there long enough it dies off and then people that come back from Antarctica it's almost you know the people that overwinter like for six months they come back to the the mainland or come back to the the other continent mm-hmm. and they have it's like being in outer space you now are exposed to all these bugs that perhaps didn't exist while you were down there it's super antiseptic because right. it's so cold and dry and nothing like that grows and so these people come back with these kind of compromised immune systems and there's a bunch of study that's been done on it it's really fascinating wow wow so being a guy who's come back from Antarctica, you, you probably got to be a little bit more cautious about those sorts of things. <laughs> I think now I've been fully, you know, in, immersed in uh, the funk that is you're North back. America. <laughs> That's right. So. <laughs> you, you've, you're back and you've had those nine days and then uh, yeah. everything comes back, the immunity uh, and the stress and, and all of that as well. Exactly. I don't, who knows, you know, you see these healthy NBA players right now that have coronavirus Mm -hmm. and, you know, my heart goes out to anybody that's impacted by that. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I could have it right now for all I know. I'm healthy. I was running this morning and I could have it and go hug my mom and, uh, you know, unfortunately make her sick. So you have to be very, very careful, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, this could easily, uh, you know, take up a podcast of its own, just being how yeah. all-consuming it is these days. But, but I oh, want to bring gosh. it back to climbing for a moment yes, and, yes, and to please, think about. Please, please, uh, yes, let's keep something <laughs> We need we need the positivity uh, yeah. to think about the climbing, all the climbing you've done. I, I I tried to tally up, and this is just the 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 seven summits and the seven volcanic summits uh, that's over two hundred thirty thousand feet of climbing i did the math earlier today <laughs> i have not i did not know that so thank you for sharing that. <laughs> in uh in all of that climbing and more that you've done what has it taught you what has the sport taught you oh patience easily that that's the easy one uh, right there just to be patient and and just to kind of roll with whatever the mountain the, the mountain throws at you. Uh, another another thing that it's taught me that I this is not political by any stretch of the imagination, but something that I backed into that I would have never thought when I started this. But uh, being you know far north climbing, far south climbing, and everything in between, there is zero doubt in my mind that the that the planet is warming and things are melting. Mm. Uh, I personally think what's controversial about it is what's causing it. And I won't go out on a limb and say what I think is causing it, but there's zero doubt in my mind, just climber perspective, uh, that it's warming. And, you know, you hear stuff from people as you're climbing, like just porters in, in Africa making anecdotal comments, like we've never in my father's lifetime, I've never seen that melt. And, uh, down in Papua New Guinea, where uh, the, when we were down there this last summer, we were at camped at 12,000 feet. And just randomly, uh, the, the guy who he actually is, his family owns the mountain. They own the access and the mountain. It's his family's uh, range. And uh, he showed us these rhododendrons, these beautiful flowers growing at 12,000 feet in the jungle. And he said, I've never known those flowers to grow this high on the mountain. And I said, do you think it's because of global warming? And he looked at me, he's like, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, the planet's like getting warmer, global warming. And he had no idea what I was even talking about. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, he's kind of so sheltered and so innocent from it. He didn't even know that that was kind of a thing. And he spoke English. There was no language barrier. Right. He had just not even heard that term before. So. 
Hmm. And, and he even described how when he was a kid, I think he said he was 44. When he was a kid, there was snow on the top on occasion and certainly uh, frost and no more. Yeah. So I don't know. I, that That's kind of something interesting that I would have never thought when I started this, you know, 15, 20 years ago that that would even be a thing. And there it was, you know, it yeah. just popped up. Mm-hmm. Thinking about difficult things. You've talked about your desire for doing difficult things, uh, what you get out of it. What What's the case for doing difficult things? Like what's uh, what's the selling point behind it? <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that I really, really like about it, I like problem solving. And so when you get difficult, you have to, you have to figure out how to solve problems. And I, I love setting a goal and accomplishing that goal. And then it, it gives you strength to set other goals. It also gives me strength in other areas of my life. So in my business, I, I'm also adjunct faculty with the University of Utah. So I teach uh, there. It gives me tremendous strength to do that and confidence in everything that I do because I know that I climbed Denali, which was super difficult for me. That I it, it, that That by far was the most difficult of any of the mountains that I climbed for me. It's definitely the coldest. And it was just difficult for me. And so I look at that and think, I accomplished that. I can do anything. And, uh, you know, I just I just love that aspect of challenging myself and knowing that practically anything, uh, and I, should, I will say this much as well, climbing Denali wasn't just physically difficult. It was very mentally challenging for mm-hmm. me, very difficult that way. And nothing has, you know, come close to that so far. So I like that. I like pushing myself that way. Mm. Anything else you want to end things on? Oh, <laughs> well, you know, it's so nice to uh, to to have you interview me. I I I hope that uh, that that some of what I have said will inspire other people. And uh, uh, I I love to encourage people to set goals and do difficult things. And you'd be surprised uh, how, how much you can accomplish if you, if you just kind of put your mind to it. Uh, whenever I speak to groups, I always encourage them to definitely set really big goals. So I call them BHAGs, uh, you know, big, hairy, audacious goals. That's not my term by the way, Mm -hmm. but, uh, I love setting these massive goals and then you have to set all these little micro goals to get, to accomplish that. So if you want to go run a marathon in a year or 18 months, You've got to do all these other things. You've got to watch your diet every day. You've got to get in an exercise program. Uh, You know, the list goes on and on of all these things you have to do. And so I I love that. And I always tell people if, you know, I was raised to set goals and write goals down. But if you really want to accomplish something, I would take it one step further. And I encourage people to tell somebody significant in their lives you know, a father, a mother, a, you know, clergy, a friend, spouse, whoever it happens to be, a son or daughter, share that with them. And if they're, if they care about you, they're going to help you accomplish those goals. So I always, you know, and, and make sure it's something to, to stretch you. I personally love setting these big physical goals, but I realize everybody isn't working at the, at the same level. So for some people, my wife has multiple sclerosis and she, she has hard enough time just, you know, walking in our kitchen. And so I always kind of, you know, try to set goals that are a little more realistic for her because she has mobility challenges. Right. So, and I, so I realize I get it. Everybody's challenges are different. And so, uh, you know, just, you'd, you'd be amazed at what you can accomplish and, and how much success you can have, even if you just set small goals. Mm. David, thank you so much for taking the time. What a pleasure. 
is wonderful. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time and, uh, and have an excellent evening. Be safe. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and review. Best of all, tell someone else you think might like it. If you really love the show, if you want to support in some way, head to the shop section on the Story Untold website. There's all kinds of merch there. It looks great. I've got the sticker on my laptop. It helps to keep this show going. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a story untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.